You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Greg Stokes with my brother Doug. Lanyap Podcast today is September 8th, 2023. It's an exciting week for sports fans around the country and the world. The U.S. Open finals are, um, semifinals are today for the men, and the finals are set for the women and the men. Uh, the women on Saturday and the men are, are TBD after the semifinals today. Uh, they play on Sunday. Um, I'm personally, I'm a big, I personally am a big tennis fan, which I'm, in, so I'm really excited to watch the semifinals today and also the, the finals on Saturday and Sunday. And for the rest of the country that doesn't really care much about tennis, football is back. NFL started last night. Um, college football started last week as well, too. So a lot going on and out of the doldrums, summer doldrums for, for a sports fan where there's not a whole lot to watch if you don't like baseball. So a lot of things going on outside of the sports arena. Um, a lot of interesting things in the markets per usual. Um, before we get into the, the, the nitty-gritty, I wanted to uh, read a quote from uh, Jim Cramer on CNBC. This is June 25th, 2023. Don't bite on oil going higher. It will just be another head fake as Russia has transactional friendships with China and India. At that point in time, oil was $68 a barrel. And this is in June of 2025. Pardon me, June, 20, June 25th, 2023. Right now, no surprise, oil is... Uh, is $88 a barrel. So a lot 25% increase in oil since uh, Jim Cramer went bearish. Doug thoughts. Uh, I think that's par for the course um, <laughs> for him. I, I want to take a step back and talk about football for a second. I haven't been able to watch any of uh, the commentary for the last week because we're TCU fans and everything's been about coach prime and uh, the miracle they pulled off uh, beating TCU. So um, everything is really uh, relying upon the Saints to have a successful season um, this year. And New Orleans is always better in the fall when the Saints are good. And so uh, really excited about opening week for them and, and hoping for a good season and at least some, some postseason glory for the Saints. Uh, as it relates to markets, yeah, I think, um, you know, oil, uh, you know, curbing, curbing of drilling and, and production in the Middle East uh, and then also – curbing of uh, lease grants uh, by the U.S. government is going to have an impact on the price of oil. And um, I think the the other component to this, too, is that demand has been a lot better and GDP has been a lot better than anticipated, which we're seeing with sort of the rise in the 10-year treasury to reflect that uh, growth is anticipated to be higher than originally projected. And so with higher growth comes higher needs for for fossil fuels, um, for manufacturing production, uh, and travel and, and commuting, et cetera. And so, um, you, you can, you can see that oil would respond to better economic outlook. And so I think that's what we're seeing as well. Yeah. And, um, there's a, another factor as well too, that, that, that there over the last couple of years, we've drawn down a tremendous amount on the strategic petroleum reserve to try to moderate prices. Uh, the uh, Biden administration's made that decision, 
and then we've got to basically refill that. If you look at the strategic, and this was put into place during the the uh, OPEC uh, uh, embargo during the seventies that we we put the strategic that we started to store oil um, in the United States so that we wouldn't have to be so reliant upon international sources of oil during crises or whatever. But we've been drawing upon that, and those levels are at basically like they at, at one point it was seven hundred fifty thousand barrels in the twenty in twenty ten. And now it's in the the uh, three hundred and fifty thousand barrel range, which is the lowest it's been in a long time. So that's another dynamic. Um, if you look, at, I really think this whole energy story is really interesting. There really hasn't been as much. There's there's been a, an adoption of electric cars, but I think that was the the adoption of electric cars was really related to people that were on board with that idea to begin with. But now that electric car makers have responded and produce these things. I think the market's becoming pretty saturated. And if you look at the price, the prices of uh, Tesla's, for example, and this, the amount of electric cars that are in stock, it's kind of uh, astonishing as it relates to, the, to both of those aspects. Specifically on Tesla's, they've been cutting their prices like crazy. The price of a Tesla Model S at the beginning of this year, which is like their highest price sedan, at the beginning of the year was $105,000 per unit. Now at September 1, it's $75,000 to get a Tesla Model S. Likewise, the Model X, which is the the uh, SUV Tesla that has those Falcon wings that open up, was $121,000 at the beginning of the year. They recently cut the price down to $79,000. Um, crazy. And then if you look at the amount of electric cars in stock, on um, new on new car lots, they're running at like twice the um, twice the average days on stock or on the lots as a, a gasoline powered car. So I think that this the whole narrative really over the last ten years was that we were going to be shifting to electric and the utilization of oil wouldn't be so high, wouldn't be so um, you uh, so commonplace. But that's not, not really what's transpiring in the market. And basically, well, like I had referenced at the beginning of the call, if Jim Cramer says one thing, it's a pretty good bet to go the other way. And uh, Jim Cramer was uh, bearish on on oil. So, yeah, the other the other thing too is the what wasn't considered is just because there's a trans sort of a um, a transition from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, although minor, it's occurring and and will continue to occur over time. The grid that these electric vehicles are going to have to power themselves off of is still going to be utilized fi- fossil fuel. So whether it's oil or gas, coal, et cetera, uh, it's, it's not like it's going away. And so demand will continue to increase. And I think that the, I c- it keeps coming back to that Jeff Curry uh, comment, who's the uh, chief strategist or chief economist at, at Goldman Sachs. And he basically said that you know $3 trillion over the last decade has gone into renewable energy and renewable energy demand or fossil fuel demand has decreased from something like 87% to 86% over that time frame. So as as more people across the globe uh, come from sort of abject poverty to some semblance of a middle class, there's going to be an increase in demand for energy, whether that's uh, you know powering a electric vehicle or powering your home, etc. And so fossil fuels, whether it's gas or or uh, oil or other are still going to be a, a major part 
unless unless we have a major shift to nuclear, going to be a major part of just the grid in general, and not necessarily just filling up your gas tank at the gas at the gas pump. So. Yeah, I don't think the nuclear thing is going to happen. We just built our first nuclear plant in like 20 years, and it took forever, and it took was twice over budget, et cetera, in the United States. I, the crazy thing to me from an, an energy investor standpoint is if you look at the price of the Vanguard Energy Index Fund, VDE, in, um, this is in 2014, the most recent peak, was $144 a share for VDE. Now it's $129 a share. It got down to like during COVID. I mean, that was the craziest, one of the craziest moments as a, um, as an investor and someone who follows markets closely was when oil went to negative $30 a barrel. So in effect, if you had oil, you had to pay someone to take it off of your hands. But the, the crazy thing to me is that even despite the fact that oils, oil prices have become sort of in the range of acceptable acceptability or oil, oil companies are, are profitable, et cetera, over the last two or three years. The, the, over the last, if you look, if you extend the time frame out, it has been an, an absolutely horrible investment over the last decade or so. Yeah. I think you can just, uh, you can just basically say commodities in general, um, have been a horrible investment over the last decade. Uh, I think commodities during you know, if you look at like 2022, for example, years in, in 2021 as well, years when you have um, unexpected and high inflation, uh, commodities are essentially a hedge there. From 2010 to 2020, there was essentially no inflation uh, and you know, commodity prices crashed over that time frame. And if you have a company that it's not necessarily you have a pricing advantage, you're, you're, you may have a scale advantage, but you have a company that is completely relying on a price of a commodity that is wildly fluctuating. It's pretty difficult to to hold a stock and make money over a long time period with that sort of that sort of uh, economic uh, situation for that particular company. So I have a question for you, Doug. Do you think that uh, I got a couple of comments? But number first question I'm going to lead with is: Do you think that um, that oil is going to be considered oil and gas is going to be considered a sunset industry, or do you think that there's going to be some re- revaluation or or what's what have you related to oil companies being more of a consistent cash flow generating uh, type of equity investment? That's number one, and then number two, I want to I want to point out something anecdotally. If you over the over the Labor Day holiday, my children and my my wife and I went to the beach. And if you were to go, we went to Alabama, which is a great, great spot. It's like three hours from New Orleans, very easy, quick, et cetera. If you were going to drive an electric car there, you probably would have to charge up at one point in time on the way back. Um, but you can drive a car, like a normal SUV nowadays can get, or, or truck or whatever, can get like 600 miles um, on one tank of gas. It, the thought of having an electric car and having to find a charger on that type of a busy weekend, getting out of the the uh, Gulf Shores area, it was just a nightmare. And there was only one place where you can charge your electric car, and there's like a line to for people waiting to charge their car. It would that sounds like an absolute nightmare to me. So I don't think just in in, in my phase of life, I don't think a, an electric car would ever really be satisfactory. And it would that there would have to be a big shift in um, in the technology and the ability for, for batteries to go have longer storage lives. Uh, lives for it to be 
uh, useful. So number one, I don't think that that's going to, it's going to be a longer time frame for that shift to happen. But Doug, I want, I'm curious as it relates to the, my initial question, do you think that the, there's going to be a re-rating on equity stock on oil and gas stocks related to the fact that it may not be this sort of a sunset industry? Uh, no. So well, I guess the first, the first thing I'll say is I think that the technology for EVs is going to get a lot better over time where you can go, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred miles without uh, needing to charge. And so it's going to take, uh, you know, could take decades, but I think that that will eventually get there. We'll also be able to get lighter batteries. So it's not such a load um, to, to, ch- to move a vehicle on a battery um, just because the battery is the largest and heaviest component now of an EV. And I think that that's going to uh, be reduced. That weight will be reduced. Uh, as it relates to energy, I think that energy from a rating perspective will likely be like tobacco. It's sort of a, it's, it's now in what, you know, for, for good or for, for bad is considered sort of a, a sin type industry. So if you go to these, you know, pension plans or endowments and they have all these ESG mandates and, you know, one of the, one of the mandates is environmental and fossil fuels are considered environmentally unfriendly, whether you believe it or not. Um, so I think that because of that, because of the uninvestability of some of these companies specifically, because you have mandates at large institutions will likely carry just a lower, uh, rating. So price to earnings ratio, then there's less, less people interested in, or can yeah, they can invest or dollars lower, lower demand equals lower, lower valuation. And I think that the way that, and so similar to tobacco, I think. But it, even even like Altria, for example, which is originally was Altria, Philip Morris, and had some food companies in there, um, Mondelez, et cetera. Uh, but I think Kraft was a part of that as well. But uh, price to earnings ratio for Altria is, has never been uh, substantially higher than 10 or 12 times earnings. But what they've done is essentially distributed uh, effectively all of those earnings and cash, well, cash flows back to investors through dividends and buybacks. And it's been one of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, stock over the last, what, 60 or 70 years. And uh, I'm not saying that, you know, Exxon, for example, is going to be the same thing going forward, but because energy companies are a lot more capital intensive than tobacco companies. But I can see a situation in which these energy companies companies, uh, have their regular capital expenditures that are not necessarily growth-oriented, but maintenance-oriented oriented and then they distribute a bunch of cash flow back to investors similar to how tobacco companies doing it where you have a consistently lower valuation but you just get a bunch of cash flow through dividends and buybacks so as it relates to esg environmental social governance um couple comments number one the this the rock i remember reading this during this isn't during 2020 december 18th 2020 the rockefeller foundation commits to divesting from fossil fuels it had five billion dollars pardon me it's it's the fund itself was the foundation itself was five billion dollars and they they're committed to not to divesting all their fossil fuel investments which is obviously ironic because john d rockefeller was the founder of standard oil company which is the predecessor to basically every major oil company in the united states um so that's that's really a a um uh, yeah, Har- I mean Harvard is a uh, is another great example. It's a what forty billion dollar, uh, forty two billion dollar endowment 
this is 2021, uh, in, a, in a Thursday message to Harvard community, President Lawrence uh, Bacow said the, that endowment managers don't intend to make any more direct investments in companies that explore or develop fossil fuels. Um, and that its legacy investment in private equity funds with fossil fuel holdings are in a runoff mode and will end these partnerships and when these par- partnerships are liquidated. Again, that was 2021. Uh, and then early. It was really easy to get out of these things, too. Yeah. And see, so yeah, yeah, the performance hadn't been there, but also Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine yet. And so uh, yeah, I would th- I would say that there's a uh, there's also an argument to be made that that uh, fossil fuel investment, specifically in America, is uh is imperative after we've we saw what what happened last year and so of course that there maybe maybe the way to do this is not necessarily just completely divest but invest in technology that makes it much more efficient energy i'm not i mean environmentally efficient uh to to source and extract fossil fuels specifically oil and gas Uh, and so i think that that's that's the direction that um is investable from my mind versus um, completely doing away with it and becoming Germany where you're relying upon um, nefarious actors to supply your energy. Right. Exactly. Um, You don't want to have, you don't want to be all ESG. And then next thing you know, you're beholden to some dictator because you're not investing in, in uh, being independent energy independent or what have you. But to your point that I do, as it relates to being like something that's, investing in uh, efficiency this is uh, average new light duty vehicle fuel economy 1975 to 2021 and this is really just market forces driving this because oil is expensive gas is expensive and so why not make a more fuel efficient car so it's less expensive to drive around in 1975 this is right at the the uh, around the time of that um, opec embargo the average fuel economy on a sedan wagon was uh and or let me look at a I'll just look at a car for for example the average fuel economy on a car in 1975 was 11 miles per gallon now it's 31 miles per gallon and it's increasing dramatically so same things, things are going to happen with batteries same right, same exactly. exact thing yeah um, right and, and or and it's going to get faster to charge and there's going to be more charging stations look i mean i mean i think evs are uh are, are going to be great they're going to be a huge part of uh you know the entire uh car fleet nationally globally i think uh, there was a uh, i haven't listened to it yet but i'm excited to listen to a podcast that uh the one lots podcast about self-driving cars and that yeah i listened to it it's great it, it, there is it, so they they talked about the the moral of the story is that uh crew it's i don't remember the name of the gm one but i think it's cruise and then uh waymo which is the google yeah. um uh, self-driving car company but basically they had an expert that came on their waymo is expanding from phoenix they you can basically hail a self-driving taxi in phoenix right san now. francisco too as well so they just opened san francisco so yeah. the the prognostication of this individual was that the their self-driving taxis are going to become commonplace in bigger suburban style cities in the united states like dallas um miami etc over the next like but between now and the next five years are going to be introduced more um more commonly in those specific areas i doubt that there'll be uh and there'll be self-driving cars in the new orleans and the streets the horrible streets we have here anytime soon <laughs> yeah i mean I, I think the 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 problem with that is that uh, it's so funny in new orleans you, that basically everybody has an suv because you can't even 
you can't even drive here with a sedan. You're basically like bottoming out everywhere you go. Right. But, That's um, horrible. Yeah. So I want to point on, on two comments and then I want to, I want to get your opinion on something. Number one, there's this huge influx, obviously of these COVID purchases. Like I don't know, have the data for this, but I'm sure that the, it's probably a good time if you're in the market to buy one of those, like, uh, those vans that has a kitchen and everything. A sprinter van. Them. Right. A sprinter van with a kitchen. But also in like probably the same thing goes for like boats and jet skis and all the, and campers and everything. But I do have data for, um, for, uh, in ground pools because pool company, which is actually based on the North shore here is publicly traded and they track this in detail. This, this is a, this is, construction permit data for 93 counties in Alabama, Florida, and Georgia, and Texas, which is 50% of the new in-ground pool construction in the United States, shows that permits are down by 36% in units and 30% in dollars year over year. So those sort of post-COVID, those COVID boom areas, I'm sure, are uh, unbooming, basically. Um, and that's a prime example. Um, and then secondly, I want to I make one comment related to um, great investment performance and one to not so great. So number one, Warren Buffett, the, uh, the chairman and CEO of, or I don't know, I don't know if he's the CEO anymore, but the chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, um, started the company or purchased the company in the sixties. And now Berkshire Hathaway could fall 99.4% and still have outperformed the S and P 500 since 1965. Number one. So he's been a really successful investor on the other the hand, power of, co- of compounding too. So the, I'd, I'd be interested in what the annualized rate of return of Berkshire versus the S and P over that time frame. I bet you it's, right, it's not, not that. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's not that it's probably not that different, you know, a couple percentage points, but, um, you know, maybe two or 3% or probably more than that, but it doesn't matter. Like it, it doesn't seem like a huge difference. And then over, uh, over you know, 60 years, it's, uh, becomes or 70 years really becomes pretty dramatic and so i think that that's such an amazing stat that berkshire could basically go all but bankrupt um you know stock price dropping more than 99 percent and still have outperformed the s&p since inception right and then the other side of the equation is on twitter you see all these uh 10 steps to become a successful investor like warren buffett like people think that they could become the next buffett if you look at what actually happens and this is Robinhood statistics. The average Robinhood investor from uh, this is pr- since the inception of the company till present has underperformed the S and P five hundred um, by an average of um, six, or but pardon, by an average of four percent per year. So um, pretty pretty extreme uh, difference. The compounding effect of Warren Buffett beating the S P five hundred over a long period of time is really um, shown itself and that's particular statistics that Berkshire could fall 99.4% and still have outperformed, but your that, average retail that, investor. Yeah. That Robinhood stat reminds me of, uh, the, and I, I think this is probably like an, a, a tale, you know, an old wives tale, but the, uh, the fidelity, you know, stat study that they did where, and, and maybe we can p- dig this up. I've actually never seen it, but I'll just quote it that, um, they, they had gone through they have millions of accounts and they had gone through and tried to figure out what the uh, what the best uh, performing accounts were within the fidelity ecosystem and they had come to the conclusion that there was a, some some general theme across the board that the people that had forgotten that they had accounts or had died um, 
with Fidelity accounts were the best performers uh, consistently. And so I think that that's, uh, uh, I'm, there's got to be some truth to it, but I'd love to find the study. But it goes to show you that an investment strategy that is stuck with, that's disciplined, that maybe you forget about over time is generally the right one. Amen. All right, guys, thank you very much for joining us today. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us five stars, share it with friends and family, and uh, otherwise we'll see you next week. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.